Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, screenwriting and the scariest things in life. The first one is the hardest. You can't get an agent without a job and you can't get a job without an agent. And uh, so it was a lot about hustling. The, I started as a production assistant. You know, in our mind, we would think of one thing, but I've worked with so many actors who are just like, I was not, I did not expect you to say it like that. And it's better than I imagined. I think a better question to ask is how do I write a script that's so good? It doesn't matter whose hands it falls into. And that's the damn truth. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So our first guest writes the stuff you see on TV. Everything from King of the Hill and Tacoma FD to Marin, Wilfred, Rules of Engagement. He's been a writer on some of Hollywood's most recognizable sitcoms. This is screenwriter Michael Jammon. So obviously, once you get established in the industry, you kind of get jobs off your reputation. But how do, how do you get that first job as a TV writer? Yeah, that's the first one is the hardest. You can't get an agent without a job, and you can't get a job without an agent. And uh, so it was a lot about hustling. The, I started as a production assistant on, a, on, on in TV shows. You know, So I was basically a gopher. I would do whatever the boss wanted me to do. And after doing that for a couple of years... Uh, you know, I was I was able to say, hey, can I pitch you an idea for a show? And they're like, you know, that's a that's a very tentative thing to do because, you know, you're you're <laughs> that's not why you're hired. But I had really great bosses and uh, my partner, I had a writing partner and we sold. They were they were running a show called Lois and Clark, which was the Superman show back with Dean Kane and Terry Hatcher. And so that was they bought an episode of that. And that was my that was my first kind of big break. When somebody's a TV writer or a writer for any kind of thing, are you writing the entire episode slash series? Or are you like, all right, I'm a TV writer. I wrote this one joke in a sitcom. No, like, no. How, how does that work? Yeah, you once you're a, you want to be a staff writer. You want to be on staff of a TV show, and a, a TV show might have like a sitcom might have anywhere between on average eight or ten writers, and you work as a group and you come up with ideas and you flesh them out into stories. And once it's all fleshed out, one writer or a team of writers will go off and write that episode. So they'll be responsible for writing an outline, then a first draft, maybe a second draft. And the second draft will come back to the writer's room and all the writers work together 
to uh, rewrite it to kind of quality control it so that you can never tell one episode of television was written by one writer versus another writer. It's kind of, it's like, as the viewer watching at home will go, oh, this is just an average episode of TV that I, of my, of my favorite show or whatever. And then there's the head writer. The head writer kind of is in charge of uh, basically determining what gets into the script, what doesn't, what are the show ideas, what, what gets made, what doesn't, and he or she is the boss. So that's the, that's, we call that the showrunner. So in TV, the showrunner is the boss. The show, the director answers to the showrunner, or the writers answers to the showrunner. The actors, you know, I guess they want they want to get the showrunner the performance that the that the showrunner wants. So he or she is is the boss. So it kind of sounds a little bit like a group project, but somebody puts their name on it at the end. Yeah, one writer is, is yeah does most of the heavy lifting. Now, is everybody in a room before COVID? But you were literally in a writer's room. You'd be in a, on a sitcom. You'd be stuck in the room with these writers for. At least twelve hours a day, sometimes much longer. These writers' rooms, the ones I've worked in, are some of the funniest people you've ever met. I mean, these are the best of the best. And so, you know, you could be howling with laughter. You spend your whole day just howling with laughter if you're doing your job right. If you're not, there's a lot of silence <laughs> and a lot of when are we going to get out of here? But uh, yeah, it's collaborative. With that kind of an effort, though, like how come some how come some TV shows they just they they don't work? Yeah, right. Well, uh, some of that's due to who the showrunner is, who the boss is. Some of it's because the network is, gives a lot of notes. They have involvement. Sometimes you have an actor who's a big star who won't do something. They want to do what they want to do. So there's a, you know, it's it's like uh, everyone wants the same. Every, everyone, I read it, uh, I'm trying to remember, a guy named Charlie Hawk wrote a book about this. And his analogy, he was a sitcom writer. His analogy was perfect. And he said, um, it's like everyone wants to have a hit show. And it's like being in a, in a lifeboat, uh, in a rowboat, and you're trying to get the same direction, but every, everyone's rowing in a different direction. The actor's going this way, and the star's going, you know, that, and the showrunner this way, and the writers in the network. And so it's like, if you can't get that boat moving in the same direction, it's a real problem. But everyone has an ego, and everyone, <laughs> so, and everyone has a different want and a need. So. For you, when you sit down to write something, like, what's your process? Uh, well, I write... I write with a writing partner most of the time. Uh, so for television shows, so we'll come up if I'm, it really depends if it's a show that's on the air or if, it's, if, it's, uh, if we have a pilot that we're trying to sell, you know, that's a different thing, but it's usually coming up with, uh, if we're on a staff of a TV show, the first thing you have to do is figure out, uh, uh, you have to break the story. You have to figure out what the story is about. And you go to a whiteboard and you have act one, act two, act three, and the writers will all pitch. Well, what if, what if it starts with what if, and then the showrunner will decide if that idea has enough meat on its bones. And then if it does, you start fleshing it out a little bit. And that just coming up with the idea and, and seeing if there's enough meat on the bones, that could easily take three to five days before, before one word is written. Yeah. How, then how long will it take to write an episode? Like, okay, from the start, the conception mm-hmm. of the idea to the very end. Right. Not obviously for the episode to air, but like this is written and done. It can easily take from the from the beginning when someone first raises their hand and says, "I have an idea." To when you start shooting, you actually start shooting the episode. It can easily be six weeks. Man, yeah, it's about quality control. It's about making sure every the story actually works and that every line is as funny as it can be. And it's a lot of rehearsal. There's a lot of rewriting. And ninety percent of writing is rewriting. So it's really about making sure it works. Do you kind of, when you write something, do you wait for inspiration or do you have a time like, all right, nine o'clock, sitting down, and something's coming out? If you wait for inspiration, you will go hungry because I, I get paid per episode produced. 
And it went, if like, I can't tell the network, mm-hmm. you know what? Inspiration didn't strike this week. Let's just air uh, color bars instead of the TV show. You know, they, that's not an acceptable answer. So there's no such thing as writer's block or you know, waiting for inspiration. You have to, it's a job. You have to, you have to make your episode of television. So you fall back on your skills and you fall back on, on, on your training to get that episode done. Is whenever you're talking about something creative though, like that, is it something, can you learn to do it? Or is it like you either got it or you don't, right? Because I wouldn't think that people can learn to be funny. You're either funny yeah. or you're not. Yeah, but you can learn to be funnier. So you're right. You have to be funny, but you can learn to be funnier and you can hone your craft. Like I'm definitely a much better writer than I was 26 years ago when I broke in. But I remember uh, I was working on a show called King of the Hill uh, as a writer you know, back in 2001. And the planes flew into the World Trade Center and, and all those the, that tragedy, all those horrible all those people died. It was just horrific. And we didn't go to work that day because everyone thought, you know, the, the country was coming apart. But the next day we had to go to work and we had to write comedy. And I assure you, none of the writers were in any mood to write comedy for that day, that week or that month or even the subsequent. Like it just felt wrong and disrespectful. So it felt sacrilegious. So many people had died and we knew that the world had changed. Like no one wanted to write comedy, but we all had to because that's the job. And so, you know, you fall back on your training to make, to write, instead of someone would pitch a joke and no one would laugh, but someone would say, okay, yeah, that's funny. We can do that. It was very somber. Yeah, that's a good idea. We can do that. And now when you look back at those episodes that we shot back then, I don't think you'd know, you would realize it was shot during a, a, a time of national grief and mourning. You just wouldn't. Is it when you write something, Obviously, it's different if you're talking about, you know, you're in your second or third or fourth season or whatever. Mm -hmm. But are you generally, do you know who you're writing it for? Like, I'm writing this for this actor. Uh, Yeah, I mean, but if if it's a pilot that we're selling, we have an actor in mind. But um, that's just really just to get a voice. So you're thinking, okay, what's this is what the voice is, what the uh, character is like. When it comes to casting, more often than not. Far more often than that, you're not going to get that actor you had in mind. There's an audition process and everyone involved has a say. And, and so once you cast the actor that you get, who's close enough to that part, then the role will the, the, the role will naturally start changing if it goes to series because you start writing to the actor's strengths and you steer away from their weaknesses. So that will definitely change. You kind of brought this up a little bit earlier, but I think the question that everybody wonders is like, how much do you get paid? <laughs> uh, not enough. It depends on. It, honestly, it depends on your level. Uh, so, a staff writer is the lowest level, and then it goes all the way up to co-executive producer and executive producer. And that's in TV. That's the highest level. And the the showrunner is kind of like executive producer and the creator. So, there are writers guild. The writers guild sets the minimums, and that will change whether you're doing a half hour show, an hour long show, cable streaming network. Every there's different rates. So it falls in a whole different range. And you, I get paid per episode produced. So if the show is doing 22 episodes, I make a lot of money. If the show is only eight episodes on, on cable, that's obviously a lot less money. So it just depends. And then residuals, like how does that work? Because you get continue to get paid, right? Yeah. If the show sells uh, somewhere, like uh, they start, you know, yeah, if, it's, if it reruns somewhere, then the writer of that episode will get paid a residual. And that also is negotiated by the Writers Guild. And so, uh, and it's standard across the board. So I don't have to say, hey, you know, this show, it's not like the writers on Friends will get more money in residuals than the writers on some show you never heard of. It's just that their episodes will air more often. And so that rate will keep, you know, they'll keep keep getting that check more often. 
but the, the, the actual amount is the same. Are most writers struggling or if you've got like a good, or you, do you do pretty well? Uh, it, you know, it, it's gotten harder over the years because the series orders have gotten shorter. So if you work on a show that only does eight episodes a season, that's a lot harder to make a living than one that would do 22 episodes. So when I broke into the business, there were four networks. There was ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, basically, and some smaller cable channels. And so it was. I think it was easier then to make a living than it is now because you could be on a hit show now, but it only does eight episodes a season, right? You could be on Barry, which is on HBO. I don't know. Maybe they do 10 or something. Hit show, but they're not working that much. So... Once you get off that, so you have to you have to hopefully sell a pilot in between, or maybe pick up another job in between that that the schedules align, so that you can go back to your hit show. I'm fascinated by logistics, and when I look at places like all the streaming services, like are there enough writers to write all this stuff? There are about in, in Hollywood, uh, the number of working writers is is just a little bit more than the number of active players in the NFL. Okay, so it's about the same, maybe a little bit more. It's in the, it's in the thousands, but yeah, it's it's not a ton of. It's, it's very competitive. Um, yeah, but why is it why is it still that competitive? When for me, for somebody looking on the outside, it's like man, there is thousands of shows on each one of these streaming platforms, and like, why is it still so competitive when it seems like boy, we got it? You well, know, but, the math there doesn't seem to work out right. Thousands of shows, eight to ten people. But yeah, and those if it's a smaller show, so my partner and I ran a show called Marin on IFC, which is a critical, not many people saw it, but it was critically, the critics loved it. But the first season, it was a low budget show. The first season, there were only four of us as writers, only four writers, me and my partner, the star of the show, Mark Marin, and uh, one other uh, young staff writer. And so it's not a lot of people. As the show as the show progressed over the year of the couple of the seasons, we had four seasons, we added more writers. But okay, you can remember, so I'm talking about working writers at any given time. So if you're, if your show's on the air, you're working, you know, if you're shooting it, your show's on the air, but then it wraps and now you're not a working writer anymore. Now you have to become a working writer. So there's all these shows, but they're not like, they're not working all around, around the clock. They're not, you know, around this, around the year. Like what's the percentage of people who would try to do this and fail? Well, you know, breaking into Hollywood is one thing, making a career out of it is, is quite another. So there are definitely writers who, who break in. And they're on a show, then they flame out. They never work again. That, that's not uncommon. Or they work out. They you know they they work again another five years later. It's just you know it's so to make a career out of it. It's like to me, I, like, I, I'm like I'm the, the that football player in the NFL who wow that guy's still playing. Good for him. He's been kicking around. That you know he's that guy. Wow. Okay. I thought he. What happened to him? He's still around. Okay. How come people don't last, right? Are they just relying on like a confluence of, of events mm-hmm. to be a good job or they just only have so many certain ideas or how come people no, don't last? So, sometimes it's a talent. Sometimes they're just not good enough to last. Sometimes it's, uh, uh, it's just the way the luck, luck breaks. Like if you get on a hit show and you work for 10 years, woo, good for you, you know? But as a young staff writer and you break onto a show and it goes for 10 years, you got it made. But you could also break onto a show that uh, that only goes like three episodes before getting canceled. And that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. And the, the fact that the show is a hit, when you're a young writer, you really have very little say over whether the show becomes a hit or a, a giant failure. You're too, you're too young and inexperienced. You don't really have that kind of control. You're just trying to keep up and learn. And so a lot of that is luck. Obviously, you don't have to name names or anything like that. But can you think of people in your experience that you would say like, you know what, they were a great writer and things just didn't work out for them? Yeah. 
And that definitely happens. And I can think of people who are not great writers and things did work out for them. So there's a little bit of both. Um, we got a bunch of listeners submitted questions. So are, yeah. are you ready for some harder slash listeners submitted questions? All right, listeners, see what you can do. Show you knew that would be a hit. Show you knew it would be a bust. Show you weren't sure of. I was, um, yeah, I knew my, when I read this pilot episode of Modern Family, oh, that's going to be a hit. I loved it. I, lo- I just loved it. And that was written by Stephen Levitan, who uh, my partner and I worked for on Just Shoot Me. So he created Just Shoot Me. And then uh, we read the pilot script for Modern Family. We were, at the time, my partner and I were running a show called Glenn Martin DDS on Nick at Night. And so that was kind of a big step for us because we were, we were the bosses. And we had seen that we saw this, uh, the script for uh, Modern Family. Wow, that's going to be a hit. But, I mean, I, I really should kind of take that back. I knew it was going to be a good show. I didn't know it was going to be a hit because there's just so many things that are outside of the control of, of the show. You know, the, 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 the quality of the script was good. I didn't know that they were going to get the great actors. That sometimes doesn't happen. Sometimes the cast doesn't gel. And sometimes the network will put it on a bad time slot or won't, they won't let, allow the show to grow long enough to, to allow it to become a hit. Sometimes they get canceled. Sometimes good shows get canceled before they can become a hit. So, but it became a hit. Any show that you knew like that, this, this, this is a show that you were working on. Mm-hmm. Came, yeah, like- absolutely. And I've done some of those and I go, this is not going to be a hit, but it, the, the job worked out well in terms of my schedule. And so I got, we, my partner and I had, a, we had one job and then the show wrapped and we had some time before it came up again. And so we had this big break in our schedule and we go, okay, this is good. You can, this is, we can make some money here. Even though the show is not going to be a hit, doesn't matter. I get, you know, I get paid to be, to write. So I'm going to write on it. Any show that you were on that you just had no idea. Like I, this could uh, go either way. Um, that's kind of every show because most of, like I said, a hit. There's one thing to make a good show, and it's something for it to become a hit. So I worked. We worked on a show called Out of Practice, which was uh, on CBS. It was a sitcom with starred Henry Winkler, Ty Burrell before he was Phil on Modern Family, Stocker Channing, and Chris Gorm and Paula Marshall. It was a great cast, and the head writers were Joe Keenan and Chris Lloyd. Uh, two, uh, Chris ran uh, Frasier for many, uh, many years. Incredibly, incredibly talented writer. Joe as well. Like the, the writing staff was like the all. We, it was, the fact that we were chosen for this, uh, to be hired in this, uh, uh, in this writing staff was kind of an honor because it was an all-star. They could choose anybody. It was an all-star uh, team to be on the show. And they, I thought the show was excellent. It was really funny. A lot of heart. Uh, the network just, it didn't give it enough chance to to grow the numbers. And so it was. I thought it was canceled way before its time, and uh, it was a shame. But it could have gone either way. Excellent show that no one really saw. Favorite character you've ever written for? Oh, you know, I've written. I, I can't say a favorite character. I, I really can't. That would be insulting. I, I loved writing for Nina Van Horn on Just Shoot Me, but also David Spade. I've written for him on two different shows, uh, uh, Just Shoot Me and and. Uh, Rules of Engagement. I was a writer on that as well. Uh, but Mark Maron, she's, uh, you know, he was amazing, amazing character and brave. Uh, I like writing. We like writing for uh, standups because they're very, they tend to be very brave. And they'll like, as long as it gets a laugh, they're like, I'll do that. They're not too worried about their image. And then, you know, but, whereas actors might kind of think, well, I don't want people to think that about me. But for standups are like, I'll do it. So he was a pleasure to write for for four years. Uh, but there's so many, I, I'm just, I'm singling out, like there's so many, the show I'm currently working on is Tacoma FD and the guys who are, uh, the actors, um, Kevin Heffner and, and Steve uh, Lemmy, 
Um, they're the stars, but also the head writers of the show. And they're a pleasure. They're just a pleasure to work for and write for. And they're in the writer's room the whole time. And, and you pitch them a joke or a story idea. And you say, say this. What would happen if you say And they'll say it. And you go, oh, that's hilarious. And you're actually, the actor's actually saying it. And you go, this is going to work because you're the star. And I can tell it's going to work because you just said it. So that's a, that's a pleasure too. We don't, we don't get into politics on this show. And we'll try to have this conversation, I guess, without getting into politics mm-hmm. necessarily. But when you see kind of the cancel culture that's coming about, right? Mm-hmm. Do you, when you, as a writer, like, do you take that into account? Would you say like, oh, we can't do that? Because this might happen, or do you purposely like go for it? Yeah, no. There's there's much more sensitivity now in terms of uh, you know hurt, hurting people. You know, you never you never really wanted to hurt people. But when we when we started off uh, on just shoot me years ago, the rule of thumb was in the writers' room you could say anything you wanted, uh, even no matter how offensive it was, as long as it was funny, as long as it got a laugh in the room in the writers' room. And that was kind of the role. And then, then now we're a little more sensitive. You don't want to hurt people. And that's kind of a little more awareness. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a balancing act. You know, you don't, you definitely don't want to hurt people, but you also want to entertain. Kind of one of those things like if everybody goes, oh, I don't know, then you yeah. probably. Right. Yeah. But I'm not going to worry about the wackos out there. Hardest season to write. I think what this person means is in terms of like, all right, say you have a show that runs for five seasons. Like oh. which one of those is the hardest season? Like the first one, the last one, the. Yeah. The first one can be the, mo- the, the most difficult because you get a lot of uh, inter first. The writers are, are still trying to find the show. The first few episodes, you're like, well, what is the show? What's, you know, and, and also what dynamics are working within the, between the characters. And until you find that you could be flailing and you get also the network is worried. That it's a big investment. These shows cost a lot of money. So the network is wants to protect their investment. You got a lot of interference, but once the show finds its legs and finds its audience and the network feels, Oh, okay, we can calm down now. We know it's working. Things tend to get a little easier. You know, I always hear these things about, right? Like the network, the bosses, the man, that kind of thing all over the place. When they have notes or criticisms of shows, do you generally understand where they're coming from or are people like, what? No, where is this? the notes tend to be very similar. Um, and the notes, it's, it, they can't, it's not like the network, uh, these executives know how to do your job. They, they have, they have a job. They know how to do their job, but they don't know how to do my job because they're not writers. So a lot of times they want reassurance. They just want to know that the show is in good hands. And if you could, they have an objection. And if you can explain it, then they go, okay, I see your point. Sometimes their notes are valid and you go, okay, I didn't really think about that. Let me rethink the episode and, and, and we can address your notes or at least address the spirit of the note. But usually it's well-intentioned. It's not like they're trying to, they're not trying to be jerks. <laughs> you know, they're trying to help. Best written TV show currently. And if it's one of yours, say it's one of yours. Oh, uh, well, best written TV show. Cur- well, I don't know about currently. I thought, I, I thought uh, Fleabag was a masterpiece. Uh, and, I, you know, that was a couple of years ago, but I thought it was b- beautifully written. And it felt to me very much like, uh, like a stage play. And of course it was, it was based on a stage play. So I just thought Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think she's an amazingly gifted writer and, 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 a, and a talented actor. I think she's a force. So that's my number one. But there's a lot out there that I love. I think Handmaid's Tale is brilliant. That's not a comedy, of course, but I just think it's cheesy. I think it's brilliant. The the show that you would look at, though, and say, like, that's all time. This is the best written show from a writing perspective. I remember I, as a kid, I wanted to write on Cheers. I thought that was Cheers was a brilliant show. I, I loved it. I always felt it had a lot of heart and a lot of warmth and felt like these – 
they were family. These characters were like, you just wanted to hang out with them. To me, that's the pinnacle. And I, so I, I aspired to be a writer on Cheers. And then I finally you know, moved out to Hollywood and I started working. And then when I got on Out of Practice that Joe was talking about, that was written on the, uh, we filmed that on the same soundstage on Paramount, at Paramount that Cheers was filmed on. And I thought, oh, I made it. But I, I'm just 10 years too late, but I made it. I got here. So, and I work with, and I've written, I've worked on some shows with many of those writers, ex writer, the people who wrote on Cheers, and I've since written with them. And I always think that's so cool. I'm like, ah, oh, man, I get to hang out with these guys. This kind of leads us into this one. Favorite experience as a writer? Uh, might have been just shooting me because that was my first job. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm here. I did it. This was my childhood dream, and I made it. And so that was very exciting. But my partner and I also ran a show, which I mentioned, uh, Glenn Martin DDS and, and also Marin. That was our first time running a show where you're the boss. And that was a great experience because then you're really – you have more creative control. And you also feel like, wow, I made it. I'm the boss. <laughs> But, but even but now I'm not like I don't have the same desire like I got to be the boss I'm like oh no I've, I've been the boss I'm okay I'm okay not being the boss too that's fun there's plenty to be you know you don't have the same stress so that's good these are some of the more lighthearted ones our mm-hmm. our audience is very lighthearted they're smart they're very lighthearted good um are writers out of ideas <laughs> no no we're not out of, that's no we're not out of ideas there's plenty of ideas uh, ideas, Hollywood tends to um, choose, you may think that we're out of ideas because why they keep on, why are they making Rocky 10? Why are they making only Avengers movies? And it's because those ideas are much easier to market. And so it's, it's a business. So there's plenty of ideas. The question, the ones that get made are the ones that, that Hollywood, that would protect their investment feels like we can sell this idea. It's easy to market. We don't have to take a giant risk. They don't want to, you know, it's a business. They want to make money. They, they want to minimize their, their losses. So I, I get that. So we're not out of ideas, but it may seem that way. And I, I understand why you think we are. Is, but how come, like, is that why in pretty much every sitcom, right, they're going to have kind of the staple of the episodes. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but like where this character has this happen to them. Mm-hmm. Like there's always kind of the same general theme. Is that because that's the natural evolution of their characters or are the writers like, Hey, we know this works, do this. You know, shows are sitcoms particularly are about um, relationships. So if you have a core of five characters that you're going to hit all those different dynamics. And then when you run out of those relationships to explore, sometimes you'll, you'll create an arc. You'll create, you'll, this character will, okay, the, what if these two characters break up? What if they get together? Now let's do a whole season where they're dating. What if this character goes to night school? Okay. Now we have all these ideas to do. So that's why we have arcs to like kind of open it up a little bit. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, it's not, I, I guess I, I, that's the best way I can answer that question really. So I don't really feel like uh, it's the same thing over and over again. If you find something that works, a dynamic that works, like when, for example, we were on Just Shoot Me, when we discovered that George Siegel and David Spade were magic together, uh, let's just keep putting them in scenes together because they're always funny together. So there's, there's that. If something works, let's keep, let's do it. Why are we going to, if something works, why break it? I know this is kind of a very broad question, but in general, like how much do the actors change the writing? Um, it depends if how if you have an actor who's also an executive producer on the show, which happens sometimes, then you can pitch them an idea. And if they don't want to do it, they're not doing it. Well, first, you can never make an actor. You can't literally put words in their mouth. If they don't want to say a line, you, they're human beings. They're not going to say it. Right. So hopefully the, you can build trust with them and, and they will you know, understand that it's a, it's a partnership. Uh, but a good actor or a great actor will surprise you with their line readings. And you go, oh, wow, you just made it better than I imagined. 
you know, in our mind, we would think of one thing, but I've worked with so many actors who are just like, I was not, I did not expect you to say it like that. And it's better than I imagined. So a great actor can do that. Catherine O'Hara, we wrote for her on uh, Glenn Martin, DDS, and, and Kevin Nealon, Judy Greer. They're all like that. They're all like, man, you just made my work so much better. There's obviously the reverse of that, though, too. Yes, time. there's definitely the reverse. And then you try to uh, write a, you know, you steer away from it. You, you know, okay, that actor does not play that color very well, or they can't, they can't, we, I know they can't hit that line without seeing, without making it sound kind of mean. So you just write away from that. And that's part of learning who these people are and, and, and being aware of, of their abilities. This is. <laughs> This is the same person who asked this question to all of our guests, no matter how they, who oh. they are, whatever their thing is. How do you feel about Game of Thrones season eight? Okay, I will tell you that. So I loved Game of Thrones, and I thought it was wonderful. And here's what I have to say about season eight. Also wonderful. Fanta- you, you don't know how hard this job is to create, to, you know, to, to make this show work. It was a giant production, and I thought, hey, I was happy with it. I thought it was, I, lo- I loved it just as much and I have a great appreciation for the amount of work that went into it. And I'm not going to bad mouth it. I'm, that's crazy. Oh, I could do better. That's nuts. Then do better. When people say that, okay, then do better. Go ahead. It's Man, I how, do better. It's so weird how public perception changes something because I was, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. This obviously isn't me asking this question, but I don't know. It just suddenly kind of like, ah, that was it. You're entitled, was it from- right. and you're entitled to your opinion. But uh, I, I do, I do get it, it. Rubs me the wrong way when people say, "Oh, I can do better." Well, then do better. Let's see it. From okay, and slightly, maybe I can ask you this question from a writer's perspective: Was that always going to be it? Right, like when you talk about season finales and use Game of Thrones as an example, mm-hmm. was that always how this was naturally going to end? No, I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm sure not. I mean, there's no way you could plan. Season episode one or a season and because you, you might get canceled anytime between now and season eight or whatever. There's no way you can map out that arc. That's just too crazy. And yes, they had source material to work from uh, the books. So that made it, of course, you know, easier. Um, but, you know, I'm sure the, the writers on that show were they were they wanted to surprise. They wanted to come up with an ending that was surprised that would not be predictable. And it's hard. It's like, well, where's that balancing? How do you give the. How do you give the audience what they want without giving them what they want? Because if you do, they're going to be disappointed as well. You know? Yeah. That that's kind of what I mean in that sense is like no matter what they did, it wasn't going to be. Yeah. And, and it's always going to be like the Sopranos had the same thing. A brilliant show. And then oh, did Tony die at the end or not? I was like, well, you know, right. You if you if you give the audience what they want, they're gonna be mad either way. So you try to surprise them. Breaking Bad, I don't believe, fell into that trap. I think they. I, I think every single episode of that, it, in my opinion, it was as if it was ha- written on a clay tablet and, and handed to them from God. I was like, "How did? What an amazing writing team to be able to do that!" And so, yeah, that ending felt very satisfying to me and surprising. But okay, it could have gone. It could have gone the other way just as well, and I still would have loved the show. Do you do you listen to that as a writer? No, or are you just like <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I try not to listen to. Uh, I try not to listen to reviews. I, if you listen to the good, this is on, obviously everyone says this. If you take the good reviews, you have to take the bad ones. And I refuse to take either. So I don't, I write for myself and to make a living for my family. And because it provides me with creative joy to, to live that kind of lifestyle. And so if you like it, great. If you don't like it, I'm not doing it for you. But you worked on Beavis and Butthead. Who was the better character, Beavis or Butthead? 
I don't, no, man. They're a team, man. They're, it's called Beavis and Butthead. You can't have one without the other. You need both. Don't they trying to bring that back? They're always trying to bring it back, I think. you know, There's always talk of it bringing it back. Michael Jordan of TV writing. There are certain... Who is the uh, well? Yeah, I guess you'd have to say the Michael Jordan of of, of sitcom writing. You know, I w- I would say Chris Lloyd is definitely up there. Uh, you know, there's so many writers who he's like, man, this this person, you know, and I, to to work with those people, you know, Michael Jordan makes everyone on his team better. Michael Jordan cannot yeah. win a championship without the four of the people on the on the floor. We, he know, he'll admit that, right? So he, it's not a one against five. So uh, to to work with people like that. Um, you know, and I've and I only just mentioned Chris Lloyd because he's because he's kind of uh, well known, and Steve Levitan as well. He's also extremely bright and very talented. But I've worked with other um, writers who you haven't heard of, who are like we talked about, who are incredibly gifted but haven't reached that level of success because of luck. Who are, and I can I've learned from all of them. What advice would you give to somebody who feels that their stuff is good mm-hmm. but just can't break through? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny because I, I mentioned this earlier. I post every day. I've been doing this for about four months. I post writing advice on, on social media, uh, like how, how to be a better, how to write, how to get break into the business, how to be an actor, how to as a director, and you can find it on uh, pretty much any platform at Michael Jammin Writer. So Instagram for sure, um, and Facebook and TikTok. But and so I, I get that question a lot, and the, and the people say, well, how do I, how do I get my script into the right hands? And I don't think that's a good question to ask. I think the better question to ask is because it takes the power away from you. You're saying uh, my, I have a great script and it has to get into the right hands, but you don't have the right hands and you don't have the right. How do I find a person with the right hands? And it takes all the responsibility and blame out of you, the writer, and puts the blame on the person with the hands. And that's a cop out. I think a better question to ask is how do I write a script that's so good it doesn't matter whose hands it falls into? And that's the damn truth. Because if you write a great script, and you give it to someone who's someone who knows someone who knows someone in the business and everyone knows someone who knows someone. Right. And that person reads it and they go, wow, this is a great script. I'm going to pass it along the line. I'm going to give it to somebody else who, who's a little closer in the business. Not because not because I want to help you. Nick. Who cares about you? I'm going to pass it along because it helps me, because if I give that script to someone, that person who's closer to the business, I'll look like a star to them because they need good scripts. And if I give them something they want now, I. Look at me. Now I'm the now I'm I'm a boss, right? And the same thing. Now that person reads a script and they go, "Wow, this is a really good script. I can't do anything with it." Uh, sorry, I can't do. Uh, this is a really. I'm sorry, I got cut off. This is a really great script. I can't do anything with it. Um, but but I know someone who knows someone, and they can do something. Maybe an, an agent or a manager, and that's how the script gets passed up further and further along the line, until finally gets into the person who says, "I can't." And this is the truth. I can't pay you for this script. I can't use this script, but I have a project that I'm working on and, and I need you to write it because you have something that I need. You have talent and you know how to write a great script. And so, and then that, now you're, now they they want to exploit you. Now, instead of you begging to get work, they're begging you to, to, to be exploited. I want to pay you because you have something I need, talent and ability. That's how you do it. But no one ever asks that question because it's, it requires work and it requires the ability. Okay, I want to learn. Everyone, and this is includes me when I broke in. I was like, "Here's a script. Can't someone just give me a lot of money for it?" Doesn't work that way. You know, that's too easy. 
So the better question is, how do I write a script that's so good? doesn't matter whose hands it falls into. That requires learning your craft, writing all the time, studying, listening to people like me. I'm not the only one on social media who talks. Uh, finding a good teacher, a teacher who knows what the hell they're talking about. There's plenty of teachers who don't. But And that requires a commitment of time, an investment in your own energy, of investment of energy and, and often you know money because you have to learn. So that's what I recommend. Ooh, what about, you weren't expecting a lecture, but you got one. <laughs> one of our questions actually was like, um, give us your best TV writing rant. That, that was it. it. That's it, man. <laughs> that might have been it. Um, I guess on that other side of that, that kind of plays along with it. You know, Squid Game is the super popular thing right now. Yeah. How do you kind of know, like that writer, the big thing is like he went 10 years, everybody mm -hmm. telling him this is crap, this is crap, this is crap. How do you know when – to stick to your guns or to really like, oh, maybe this really is crap. Um, and I don't, and I know that story, but I don't know the rest of the story of his career. Am I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have know anything else about it either. I imagine he had this great idea for a show and he's trying to sell it. But in the meantime, he was trying to do other work. I imagine he, okay, I'm going to also come up with this other script or I'm going to try to write in this show or that show. It's like, it's not like you just put all your eggs in one basket. You know, you kind of, I think that would be foolish. You want to continue. Okay. I wrote something great. Maybe I can't find the right market for it, but I'm going to write something else and write something else and something. And so you have to continue writing. Uh, and if I, I, again, the first scripts that I wrote 26 years ago, I thought were great. I, I thought they were great. Right. But now when I look at them, I cringe because I see how much I've grown as a writer over the years. And that's all I've only grown because I've continued writing. It's not because I was hanging desperately onto this one script that I wrote. So write it, put it aside, write something else. Um, that's really all the questions I got, man. Anything yeah. you think that we missed or what's kind of coming up next for you? Uh, yeah. So I go back to, to uh, as a writer, co-executive producer on Tacoma FD. That starts probably, in, I'm thinking, in January. Uh, my partner, I have a couple of pilots that we've sold that we're currently writing. Um, so that's good. Uh, and by the way, when you sell a pilot, it doesn't mean it's going to be gone in the air. It means they've paid you to write a pilot script. And then there's then once they there's that you get to that step and then maybe if they like it maybe they shoot it and if they shoot it maybe they put it on the air so there's a lot of maybes between now and then so that's the word that's the life of a writer well I'm happy that we sold it so we get to write it um, so there's that and again like I talk about I I and I'm working on a collection of um, personal essays that I'm hoping to publish soon and so that's what's next for me and I also like I said I post every day this started during the pandemic uh, I had a friend who was begging, who wanted to break into the business. And he's like, ah, man. and I used to talk to him, you know, but I, he, I'd read his scripts and I'd give him help. And he said, you got to make a course. I'm like, dude, I don't have time to make a course. You got to do it. And I'm like, and then the pandemic hit and shut everything down. So I was literally had nothing to do for the first six months, the pandemic, nothing to do. There was nothing going on in my career in Hollywood. Everything was shut down. Everyone was hunkered in their homes. And so that's when I made this course. And if any, any of your listeners want to want to check it out, they can learn more about that at michaeljammon.com slash course. And I also post um, just for fun on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook, just daily tips. When we get off of this, I'm going to go make my, my three-minute video on TikTok or whatever that I'm going to share just about you know how to be a, a writer, how to live a more creative life, and how to break into the business. So if that interests you, go ahead, follow me there. Uh, you know, People love that. I want to thank Michael so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media sites. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter and Instagram. And we have also included his information in the episode description. Okay, now let's go ahead and bring in John Shaw. What TV show or movie has had the most influence in your life? 
Mm. <laughs> Actually, when you really think about it, can I just say porn? Maybe porn's had the most impact on me. Is that how you learned? <laughs> I mean, isn't that how most young boys and young girls learn? I haven't really necessarily taken any lessons from it. I mean, I've learned about the overall anatomy, but I've never been like, ooh, saw Johnny Danger try this move. I'm going to test this bad boy out. Oh, well, then you're not doing it right, I guess. I don't know. Probably not. I mean, there's moments, but, you know, nothing that, like, that I'm going to say, oh, man, Titanic is the reason why I, you know, live or something. Like, there just hasn't been... I've never learned anything. That's kind of a shocking amount of time that we have spent basically in front of a television screen and never learned anything from that. I mean, I uh, so you make fun of me, or you have, for those who are just tuning into the podcast for the first time, because I like to I like to watch documentaries, specifically war based. Specifically, the most boring documentary that you can imagine. It's not like we're watching a documentary about space or a documentary about some kind of new scientific discovery. John is watching World War One documentaries about tanks. <laughs> like the kind of stuff that people wonder, who is watching this? No. It's exclusively 85-year-old men and John. I mean, you do bring up a good point of how much time are we really wasting, like watching a TV show where we learn nothing. Yeah, but if you're not wasting your time watching the television show, you're probably wasting your time doing what? Playing video games? It's not like you were going to be solving the world's problems if only you hadn't been watching <laughs> Squid Game on Netflix. <laughs> Which I still haven't seen, by the way. I don't think I'm going to. Too scary for me. <laughs> of course it is. All right, are, are we to that time where we get to give some shout outs? Outs, 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 outs. It's amazing how that gets worse in my mind every day. Because I think as I get, I'm getting older, my voice is getting a lot more, uh, a lot more terrible. It's not young and hip now. Mm. Now I just sound like an old man, and it's kind of depressing. Do you feel like you were ever cool? No, absolutely not. I probably, I might have had a stage for like two or three months when I was in my. <laughs> mid 20s like 27 i think there could have been a one to two month stretch where i was cool but that's about it no I, i've never i mean i would say i'm maybe like i'm cool at moments you know like like if we're out at a bar and i'm the shot guy you know like i'm probably pretty cool then yeah but overall i'm no i'm not i you know i'm not cool i would argue to say there actually aren't very many people who are just cool Maybe that's why it's such a rarity, why you're so, like, drawn to cool people. is because most people are kind of tools. <laughs> well, I mean, but, right, so uh, being cool is all subjective. Like, to me, The Rock is cool. But I think if The Rock walks down a street, everyone's man, man woman, whoever, even if you don't know who he is, just his swagger, you're going to be like, I don't know who he is, but he seems pretty cool. He might be a douche. Well, I mean, it probably helps to be a giant human. Oh, man. Right? Like, it, it wouldn't be the same if The Rock was like 5'5", 120. Like, nobody's <laughs> going to be looking at him like, man, look at that guy. I don't know who he is, but he's pretty sweet. Look at those. Uh, anyways. We, yeah, we don't. I'm just saying. Or, you know, like if Clint Eastwood was walking down the street, right? I mean, you might. Now, obviously. But 30 years ago, yeah, he might have been lost like. lost it now. Yeah. You might have been like, that's a cool dude, you know? I could go with Will Smith, too, at the height of his career. Yeah. He was probably a pretty cool dude. 
Exactly. But anyway, all right, let's move. All right, here we go. Uh, All right, we'll start with uh, Kevin Moon. Appreciate you. Uh, Shoes from cows is is his handle. I don't get it, but it sounds kind of cool. Lazaro Ricardo, Matt Strain, Lucio Fernandez, Monet Everett, uh, Luke Johnson, Jonas Paradica, and Tyler Barnick. You all get the... uh, the special shout outs for this episode. So thank you very much. Uh, all right. So uh, looking Nick, at that shout out, looking at, looking at that shout out list, which people do you think were probably the coolest simply by their names alone? Oh man. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go with probably Laz- assuming it's real, a real name, Lazaro Ricardo. That just seems cool to oh, me. Oh no, it's Luke. Don't know why. No, no I think it's Luke Johnson. <laughs> Uh, I know exactly what Luke Johnson looks looks like. I mean, yeah, either him or Kevin Moon. You know, Kevin Moon, like, I have a picture of who Kevin Moon is. No? All right. Not in my mind. It's Luke Johnson all the way. Okay. All right. These questions are uh, Halloween-based because we, we won't have another episode coming out before one of the worst holidays in America. But uh, so here we go. I don't know why you hate Halloween. Yeah, yeah. What's your problem with Halloween? The problem is is that you don't go full on for it, right? Like you take a half-ass approach to it, and then because you do it half-ass, then you're like, oh, we didn't get fun. Well, you didn't try. If you would try and enjoy Halloween instead of being the spoil guy who just doesn't want to have a good time, then maybe you would enjoy it more. But you're like, oh, I guess I'll wear a costume. I just put a hat on. <laughs> and you don't you don't embrace it, man. If you would embrace it, then you would have a good time with it. I, but you're scared. I, <laughs> I I I'm not gonna say I'm scared, but I can't argue against anything you just said. I just I don't like dressing up. I don't like costumes. I don't I don't really like the whole you know. I, I just I just don't really like it. I guess I I don't know. I don't have a specific reason because like I like horror movies. I like scary things. I just don't like. There's a lot of pressure to come up with a good costume, you know, a lot of pressure. That's what it is. This is what it boils down to is that you have to put in effort into it. You have to put in thought and then <laughs> effort, and you don't want to do that. So instead, you just want to like half-ass it, be lazy, and think that that's going to be okay. You're missing out on one of the greatest American holidays. There's an old saying, go big or go home, and you won't do either one. So either go big or go home. <laughs> but oh, don't my. be in this middle ground just kind of like, oh, Halloween. So this is really ironic you just said that. I know people at home can't see my – my little print out here. But one of the things that I was going to ask you <laughs> was uh, you a... what? Yeah, I print out. I print out. You have my, a... I have like a little uh, like a little script. You waste you waste paper on the no, printout. I, no, you I just uh, read it off the computer screen. I punch I punch I, I uh, punch holes in them or whatever. That's you know, a three, three old punch. And then I save them into, you know, I put them in a binder. I've been doing it for like a year and a half now. Very nice. Okay. Anyways, so one of my questions was go big or go did you, home. Wait, did you, did you, <laughs> excuse me, I got a question really quick. Um, did you go out and buy the binder specifically for this or did you already have the binder? Uh, <laughs> I went out and bought a binder specifically for this. Yes. Did you buy the, did you buy the three hole punch too? Or did you have that already? No, we had that, but I, I had to get a binder that had uh, uh, like bigger rings, you know, so I could, could I could put mm. more on it. So. 
Oh, like the two-inch one. Why do you have a three-hole punch? There's no reason for you to have a three-hole punch. Neither you nor your wife as a teacher. Why do you have that? <laughs> I love out of all of this, that's the thing you're centered on. I, I don't know why we have it. My wife, I mean, you're married. My wife has stuff. I, I don't Like headlamps just showed up to my door the other day. Headlamps. What the fuck am I going to? I mean, you could use a headlamp. Excuse my language. What am I ever going to use, use a headlamp head. for? You can use a headlamp if you run out of power. That's a logical and forward-thinking purchase. Quite honestly, she's being prepared to take care of the household, and you're out there buying fucking three-hole punches. I well, for, no, that was her three-hole punch. But either way, I, I, it's fine. I don't understand. I guess I don't get it. I just my my wife is a kindergarten teacher, and she doesn't have a three-hole punch. Uh, well, maybe she should get one. Uh, okay. All right. John has a three hole punch for anybody listening. Uh, so, so one of the, one of the questions was, uh, uh, what you just answered was go big or go home on costumes. Like, are you the effort guy or are you like the barely effort guy just to go to party? Um, but I think you just answered it for everybody. I'm going to go 75%. I'm going to go just enough that somebody says, okay, they actually did a costume. They're actually participating, but I'm not going to inconvenience my night in any way. Generally, what I'm going to try to do is have a costume that allows me to be in a costume, but also to be lazy, like Dr. Scrubs. That's a great costume that allows you to be in costume, but also be lazy at the same time. What your best costume that you've ever from childhood to now what's your favorite costume you've ever done the best costume that i ever did i'm sad to say this i know how lame this sounds is a husband and wife costume in which both my wife and i were bikers but i was like a biker like riding a bicycle with the spandex shorts and the reflective vest and the helmet and stuff and she was like a biker like a motorcycle biker okay and the joke was like oh we said bikers but we got it confused okay that's my best costume i think that's legit that's a good one okay it's a legit costume, but it's also lazy in the same sense. Like I didn't really have to do anything. I mean, I had a bike helmet. I just had to buy shorts. Well, it's probably very comfortable, right? Like gives you a lot of, you know, room to move. You're not, you know, bulky. Well, I mean, bike shorts are pretty tight, man. <laughs> All right. The other question was, uh, you know, little Nick's trick. Wait, what's yours? What's your best costume? The time you turned a t-shirt back inside out and said, I'm inside out, man. That's Actually, that's like for people who don't know. That's like the level of John's costumes. Like I got a, I'm I'm the inside out guy. Uh, no, like he actually, turns a t-shirt inside out. And for the why he doesn't like Halloween. For the record, it was the the guy you can always count on. It actually would have been better if you would have said, "I'm inside out, man." Best costume I ever had was I, I had to be seven, eight, nine, or ten. I don't know. I was a, I was a kid, but I was the Pillsbury Doughboy. And, didn't uh, have to do anything, huh? Just walked oh, out no. there without a shirt on. Nope, that's still a joke to this day that uh, my mom didn't have to stuff my shirts with too many pillows because I already had enough there. So appreciate that. I, I don't want to get into parenting. I feel like that's kind of a traumatizing costume for a child. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, we don't need to get into it, but I, you know, you might be correct. That would be like, that would be like if you were a real ugly kid and they're like, oh, he's sloth from the Goonies. <laughs> Like what? Oh man, he, my yeah. kids are dumbass. <laughs> like he's been held back three years. What he's dressing up at? He's dressing up as a dumbass. Like that's probably not good for your kids' morale. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Shit. 
hold off on that. Just make him fucking Spider-Man. It's, <laughs> it's real much easier. Um, the other one, the other question I had was, uh, you know, you're trick or treating. What, what's the more lamer thing to get? Like the candy that you don't want. That could be whatever you don't like. Like for me, it'd be candy corn or, you know, so, something like that or getting pennies. Did you even take oh, the pennies? people who give out anything. No. Yeah, okay, me. Either. No. People who give out anything other than candy are just the worst people. And they should be banned. They should be banned <laughs> from participating in Halloween. And they should actually be banned from society. If you're giving out, like, healthy treats or pennies or some crap like that on Halloween, you, you should just need to move to move to an island. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, there was a man around the corner for me when I was growing up that would give you know, it would give you he would, like he would just drop four or five pennies in your in your thing, and it's like looking back on it, I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, well, like, how many other people in the in the neighborhood would like you couldn't? How many people would you have to go to to get a dollar? Oh God! Just think about that. Somebody yeah. gives you like five pennies, you'd have to go to twenty other houses where somebody is giving away pennies for you to get one dollar. Yeah, it's. It really makes no sense if you think about it. It makes no sense. It's the worst people on the planet. <laughs> Assholes. All right. <laughs> All right. So I, there's many things we could talk about. So I'm going to let you pick out of a list of four here. All right. Oh, this uh, this is our this is our current event. It's supposed yeah. to be controversial. Let's hear it. So uh, let's see. We could we could talk Alec Baldwin, prop gun mayhem on set. <laughs> Uh, we could talk. Okay, about- let me. I'm going to sum up each one. I'm going to sum up each one in a sentence. Sorry to interrupt you. No, How the hell does that happen? How does that happen? There is no reason that that should happen. I mean, no, yeah, absolutely. There, there is no reason I, I, except for the. I've been reading a lot of things. Who knows if they're correct? I'll say that, but that uh, um, it was kind of a shoddy set, anyways. It wasn't really well managed. I mean, Alec Baldwin was a an executive producer. He should have known. Uh, I mean, just a lot of things uh, that should have been taken care of that weren't. No, I don't. I don't understand how that happens at all. No, I, I, I have, it just it makes no sense to me. Uh, all right. Well, uh, <laughs> here's one on the on on the lighter side. Uh, the Boston Beer Company. Is throwing throwing out. I'm going to say that again. They're throwing out millions of cases of Truly because the demand for seltzer is half. I was reading of what it was just a year ago. They're not discounting it. They're literally throwing it away. Well, I mean, that actually okay from a business perspective. I would say that that actually could make sense, right? Because you probably make that for what? Let's just assume that you make it for like 30 cents a can. You probably actually still make more money by selling the stuff that's out there or going to sell for the regular price Mm -hmm. than by heavily discounting it to get rid of all the other stuff. It's probably better to throw most of that away. And also, how the hell are these companies surprised by that? Did they think that people were going to continue to drink hard seltzer, that this wasn't some big fad? That was going to like, oh, this is going to continue forever. MySpace got it locked. <laughs> Future is solvent. Like, how did you not see this coming? That like, all right, guys, let's not put every single thing we can into this idea. 
Yeah, I mean, first off, it wasn't necessarily new. There had been seltzers out there, and, you know, they got big. And like you just said, it's a fad. I don't understand why these companies put billions of dollars thinking this was going to be sustainable when clearly it isn't going to be. Because there's like a business, and there's the business meeting, and somebody's like, hey, this company's doing that. Oh. And their boss asks them, what are we doing? And they're like, oh, well, we got to do it too. And nobody actually fucking thinks if it's a good idea or not. Oh boy, you're you're kind of hot today, man. You are you're a little rolling. Uh, I'm sad about that. I'm well, I can't wait to stuff. I'm sad about people that fucking candy. I can't wait to hear what you're going to say about this one. Uh, there is a woman who is suing Kellogg's uh, in Pop Tarts specifically because she says she got a package of Pop Tarts that lacked like a lot of strawberry filling, and she is now suing Kellogg, saying that Pop Tarts lack real strawberry filling and lots of it. See, okay, now this is something that I've actually learned from a TV show and that I find to be very interesting. The the the, the companies do this on purpose. Remember this McDonald's thing a bunch of years ago where a woman sued because the coffee was too hot? Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it sounded like so stupid. Like, why would you – but turns out that like the companies – they hired PR teams to basically make it look like this woman was an idiot when in reality McDonald's was the problem. They were making their coffee regulations that it has said the coffee has to be heated to 190 degrees and then we hand it to customers. Like that's fucking ridiculous. You're giving somebody 190 degrees of water and some other stuff in a small paper cup and then they put in their laps? Like fuck, that's a stupid problem. That's a stupid way to be doing business. So on the uh, the point is – on the outside, that sounds like an incredibly stupid lawsuit, but I bet there's some good reason why behind it. Like, I bet it covers up completely, like, company negligence or malfeasance. Wow, you really took that in a, a direction I, I wasn't even thinking when I wrote that down. So Right, because – Everybody was always like, wow, look at these stupid lawsuits by these stupid people. This woman sued McDonald's because coffee is hot. Well, right. it turns out the coffee was 190 fucking degrees. Like, oh, that's pretty bad. <laughs> that, uh, wow. I'm fired right. up today. Yeah, you are fired. Well, we're going to end here on, on, a, uh, on a, a lighter note, and that was uh, this weekend's football games. Uh, First-time kicker for the Washington football team, Chris – Blew it. His first NFL kick was blocked. So he literally blew it. (laughs) I'm done. I'll see you later. I was wondering, how long did it take you to put that together? (laughs) I've been thinking about it for a day or two. But blew it, man. Did you type it out? uh, No, Did you type it out or did you type it? No, that one I, I wrote down right there. Oh, so you, yeah, it wasn't type out level on your sheet, but you thought it down and jotted it. It was, yeah, it wasn't. Nope. Nope. Are you okay. impressed by All my right. type outs? I mean, you yeah. feel, I, I feel like you're judging and mocking me here. Um, I'm both impressed that you took this level of organization, and I think it's a colossal waste of time, paper, and ink. <laughs> and I don't understand why you have a three hole punch, but. Uh, are you ready for our top five? <laughs> I have nothing else to say, so yes, please. Uh, so our top five is kind of Halloween-themed, but also not really at the same time. It's top five scariest things that everyone has to do. What's your number five? 
Uh, as adults, right? Or as kids, just okay. overall. All right, fine. Uh, well, mine, it really doesn't change me, I guess. Uh, my number five is making appointments. What's what's scary about making an appointment? I just, I, I just like don't... you don't understand the, the 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 like how to do it. No, you don't I... know what's going to be going on with your day. Your I, I just... what's scary about making an appointment? It's just you know, it's it's. I think it has to do more with the commitment issue to me. You know what I mean? It's like it's like, hey, I'm making a, a doctor's appointment for four months out, and then a week, you know, the week comes or whatever. And they send you the text like, oh, hey, you made an appointment for Friday at four o'clock. And it's like, oh, I, I can't go now. So then you got to call them and you got to reschedule. And it's just, you know, it's just it's just a hassle. It's just something I don't want to do. I want to hire a secretary and have them do all, all my appointment booking. You'd still have to go to the appointment. Yeah, it's That's it, incredible. It, it is an incredible answer. It, it, it's OK. It's not about it's not about going. It's about. It's specifically making the appointment, not going. Well, where are you? Who are you? It's just okay. (laughs) All right. Look, I can't tell you how many times I've been terrified to make a schedule a haircut. Fucking terrifying. I I get it, man. I got to go there and shit. Yeah. All right. I I get it. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm hope these don't get much scarier as we go up the list. <laughs> Are you gonna be able to handle it? I don't know. We'll see. Trying a new food. <gasps> oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. My number five is getting on a plane. I always think of all the terrible things that are going to happen when I get on a plane. And now that I have children, it's much worse, right? Like I'm going to die. They're going to be raised by somebody I don't like. They're going to turn out <laughs> to be shit bags. Like, See, yeah, I hate getting on a plane. See, I understand. That's, that's, I understand that, but I, I, I've never. I'm not. I'm not scared. That doesn't scare me at all. I'm more scared of having to like sit next to somebody on a plane than I am actually being on a plane. Oh yeah, I could see that. I would. In mind, the getting on the plane and thinking about what could happen if the plane crashes is the particularly the scary part. But the overall process of it is scary. But wait a minute. But you can schedule a flight and go on a vacation. Is that scary, or is it specifically the appointment? No, I mean it, it could it could be that too. It could be you know it could be it could be scheduling or anything. I just I'm just not a big fan of it. You know what I mean? I would rather pass it off if I have to, which is makes no sense because in my job, like what I do for a living, a lot of it is coordinating and things. But in my personal life, it's like the complete opposite. It makes no sense. I get it. Uh, all right, okay. my number, my number four. Right. Uh, my number four is call. <laughs> speaking of, uh, kind of the same thing, but not really, and it's calling customer service. Oh, I love calling customer service. If I have one talent in my life, it's calling and complaining to customer service. I'm incredibly good at it. If anybody in listening or you ever need somebody to call on customer service and complain to get you out of something or to make have make them make amends, you let me know. I'm fucking great at it. I'm, That's honestly the only thing I would ever brag about is my ability to talk to customer service. But what are you so scared about cu- talking to customer service about? I, I just I get so emotional because like I know it's going to be a, a headache. It, it's always a headache. It's kind of like walking into like a like a Best Buy or a store like that, and you know you're going to get approached about buying fucking cable. Like, 
I don't want to buy a cable. But anyways, getting back to the customer service part of it, it's like, you know, you're going to get the runaround or like if you call to get your cable switched, right? Like you just want to cancel your cable. First, they put you on hold for 20 minutes and then they come back and then they go, well, let's do this, this and this for you. And you can't say no. You try to say no, but they won't let you. You, you, li- you can. You literally have to hang up the phone. You say no. If you want to end it, I, I, you know, and it's, I think that, I think that, you know, when you have these kind of problems, I think the first place that you should look is in the mirror. <laughs> I'm working the problems with you, my friend. I'm working on that. I'm working. I, but we don't make, you know, I, I haven't got a profoundly pointless sponsored therapist yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. Sounds like you have an issue with commitment and confrontation. <laughs> You might be right. I'm not really sure. You could be right, but before this turns into a therapy, there's session, no could be. You should. Uh, there's you no should, could be about it. You just go <laughs> on to your number four. Ooh, asking someone out, asking someone you like out on a date. See, what's it like? You gotta really like them. See, once again, like I, I've never not I'm, just to like fuck it. They they say yes, they say no. Like you actually have to have some investment in it. Like, ooh, I really like this person. I hope they say yes. Yeah, I mean. That's that's actually a really good one. That uh, I was pretty drunk anytime I ever asked someone I really liked out, but I could understand if you were sober. Yeah, yeah, and I've had no problem asking people out that I wasn't that interested in because I don't get <laughs> shot down, and shot down all the time. It's not a big deal. Yeah, but it's for different sure. when you really like them. Okay, it's your number three. <laughs> Oh, uh, th- this just makes me sound really bad now that I'm that I'm thinking about it. Um, <laughs> I have driving as my number three, <laughs> which completely plays into John everything. Is, what's, which which is crazy, and I don't. The word okay, so there's probably a better word that we should be using at this point but we have not evolved to the level in which I know that word is. But John, what's the amazing thing about it is like, John is not a pussy. He's not, but you sound like such a wuss. I, I know I get like it, man. You I, sound like a wuss, but you're not. It's, it's kind of crazy. I just, you know, uh, driving specifically, it's <laughs> as I was, as I was saying, I was really trying to pick something else. Cause I didn't want to say this, but it's really the confrontation. And knowing that every time you get into a car, it's kind of like the plane thing, except every time you get into a car, you know something's going to happen. Like either you're not going to go too fast or someone's going to ride your ass or like, you know what I mean? Or or you're going to go into a parking lot and you're going to have to, you know, you know, it's just it's it's just it's a lot of stress, a lot of stress. Have you have you considered the idea that you could be a terrible driver? But I don't think I am a terrible (laughs) That's what every driver says, isn't it? It kind of sounds like it. Kind of sounds like you might be. I mean, if you're having that much difficulty out on the road every single day, it's probably time to park it, take some defensive driving classes. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Like, I'm not. I'm not saying that I have trouble. But every time you get into a car, there's. It just seems like there's always something. Like it's never just like, oh, hey, I'm going to take Bobby and Jerry, and we're going to go to the movies tonight. Like, there just always seems to be something. I can't honestly think of the last time that I drove a car and there was something. 
I mean, are you just getting super fired up about minor incidents? Like, oh my God, that guy, he inched forward two more inches and he was really close to the lane and I had to swerve into the left lane and the intersection because otherwise I was going to kill him and I was going to die and his whole family going to be like, what is going on there, man? You just either got a, you either a terrible driver or you just got to take it easy. Yeah, it's probably Relax. the sex. It's probably the second part. It's why, you know, I probably need to go on medication for my, you know, I blood pressure. Help. It's not the McDonald's yeah. I had last yeah. night. Right, right. Okay. Uh, my number three is like a legitimate thing, buying a house. Yeah. That's I, your biggest financial commitment right there, man. That's a big one. No, I would say having a, a partner is bigger. They're just going to be buying shit all the time. (laughs) You can get divorced, man. That's not a big deal. You can get out of that situation, but you're not getting out of a house. Not without some serious dings on your credit. Yeah, that's true, too. I was more nervous about buying a house with my wife than I was about marrying my wife. I can get divorced. That's not a big deal. But fuck, what are we going to do about splitting up this mortgage? (laughs) Yeah. That's that's a problem. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Uh... My number two is uh, okay. starting starting a new job. Okay, I can understand that one. Mine is a little bit like that. Mine is specifically starting a new school. I think starting at a new school is like starting at a new job, except it's for school. You're at a much more um, delicate age. You know what? Like I'm, you're much more likely to have a hard time. I'm going to amend mine, but because... I would agree with you. I'm I'm gonna say school because because I uh, I was kind of doing it from an adult standpoint, but like I I think uh, you know starting a new school it would be much more scarier than starting a new job for sure. Yeah, you're just at a much more impressionable time of your life, I think. But it's basically starting a new job is the adult equivalent of starting a school when you're a teenager or younger. I think that's fair to say. So uh, yeah. that okay, was your number your no- two. Ooh. Okay. That's my number two. Yeah. That's your number one. Uh, moving away from home. And I I guess when, when I say that, you know, it, it could be really just the first time that you go away or, or permanently go away from home. So it's not like you go to college and you come back. It's like you, you're gone. Like you're officially out on your own. You know, mommy and daddy aren't paying or whoever, you know, you like you're you're on your own for sure. Not no going back. I see for me I would put that only an honorable mention, but my circumstances are a little bit different. Like you grew up in a big city, I grew up in a small town, and there was there was never any choice but to leave. So it was never a big deal. It was like something that you had to do. Like, yeah, of course I'm leaving. <laughs> and well. the it, it was not a question of if my life would get better. And then after that, subsequent times that I've moved after the first time, you're like, it's not that big of a deal. You can do it again. And so it was never a big deal afterwards. But otherwise, I would agree with you. What's your number one? First night at home with your first kid. Yeah, that's... That, you know what, though? I, I uh, For me, I'd say it was more scary the first night in the hospital with the kid. I feel like, you know... Not, at home, I actually think I was a little a little more calm. I think the first night in the hospital, I think I was more scared. But either way, I think it's a You were more one. worried? Yeah. Because you have no idea, right? Like Mine you're literally def- like 
here's this fucking human that you have to take care of now. No one gives a shit except for you and your wife and maybe some family. Like right, like now, now, now you're on your own, man. <laughs> Here you go. Okay, let's just let's, let's just move on then. <laughs> uh, I don't. Really oh wait, have... what's in your honorable mention? Yeah, I mean, I I, I have paying taxes, uh, um, uh, burying somebody you love, getting really, really dark and serious. Uh, car shopping can be scary. Uh, this one was kind of interesting, but drinking or eating the same stuff that you did as a kid. Like it's scary to, th- it's scary to think that, that you don't grow like, you know, like, Oh man, I'm just going to keep drinking. Uh, you know, I'm going to keep eating pop tarts and drinking chocolate milk till I'm 55 years old. Like scary to think that's more of like a not growing thing though. Like, you know, not, uh, I'm not oh, really sure I'm making that. Me. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I'm making that make sense. Yeah. I feel like when I wrote I it down, it made it. sense. I understood it better before you started explaining it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and now I'm thoroughly confused as to like. So wait, you're worried about <laughs> doing the same stuff all your life? I, I you just edit that part out. I I don't. No, I'm gonna leave that right in there. <laughs> the, the, the more I, <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I'm just gonna talk myself in circles because it, you know, if it doesn't make sense okay. to me, it's not gonna make sense to anybody else listening to this. Going to the di- going to the dentist. Going to the dentist is always a scary is always a scary fucking thing because at least if you go to the doctor, right? Like I could go to the doctor now at my age, relatively healthy, and I'm I'm not worried about it. Like I don't think there's going to be a big surprise. But I go to the dentist, fuck, I don't know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, doctor's going to look at me like I know my body's working. I have no idea what's going on in my teeth, even <laughs> though I'm brushing them. Like I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, please leave a review. We really appreciate it. And we'd love to know, what are some of your, what are some of the scariest things that you've had to experience in your life? If you get a chance, please leave a review. We really appreciate it. And we'd love to know, what are some of your, what are some of the scariest things that you've had to experience in your life. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.